Hello and welcome to this podcast-only edition of the Culture File Weekly. On the radio this weekend, it's a special Samhain edition of the Culture File Debate on the subject of fire, its reality and its magic. But here on the Wintery Podcast, we're coming mainly from the Irish Museum of Modern Art in Kilmainham. We're at what the museum's director, Annie Fletcher, called a pilot festival, Earth Rising, which is a sort of eco-happening gathering scores of artists, musicians, crafters, architects, activists and researchers celebrating planet Earth and howling into the wind about the climate emergency. So for this edition of the programme, we're going to wander that bit of the Earth that is Kilmainham and meet some of those taking part in last weekend's events, starting with a visit to the stage where the accidental rapper is dropping some eco-science. Food shortage, extreme weather and societal tension. If you're not worried about the climate, you're not paying attention. It's the forces of greed versus the forces of nature. Optimism, bias won't stop the melting the glaciers. Yeah, everything you grows out the overton window. Meanwhile, temperatures rise. I'm the accidental rapper. Uh, I'm an activist and uh, a rapper. Um, I write about a lot of social justice and environmental issues, and I use hip hop as a way to to get those issues across to a wider audience. Double speak, on repeat. Are you having a laugh? Energy security from freedom gas. It's fossil gas. I was asked to, to come to perform at the IMA um, Earth Rising event. So not, not my usual kind of venue for, for gigs or whatever, but um, all the, the events here are teams around climate change and, um, and kind of how we can help to, to solve that issue, I guess. A lot of really creative um, people putting together exhibits, kind of re, reimagining how the future could look. Um, I've just finished my own set. I did a, a kind of an hour-long lecture slash gig um, talking about climate change issues um, the impacts of, of our kind of modern lives and our, our disconnection with like where our food comes from where our clothes come from um, like the jobs that we work and how, how unnatural all of that can seem um, and then like talk about data centres and gas LNG terminals and, and fossil gas plants some of the, the kind of really emissions heavy issues we see in Ireland as well as the, the trade deals and the inter- international agreements that keep us locked into those systems no report they feed us lies. Shannon, Cork, Ellie, Jesus Christ. You all fool us once, you all fool us twice. Shannon, Cork, Ellie, Jesus Christ. Keros1 has a really good lecture where he talks about there's two brands of hip hop. There's hip hop with a capital H and hip hop with a, a lowercase h. Hip hop with a capital H being the, the original culture and that whole movement and, and that kind of progressive movement in New York in the 80s and stuff. It wasn't, wasn't uncommon to hear guys saying, like, are you kicking knowledge? Are you dropping science? Like, Intellectualism and, and rap weren't, were not separate things. They were one of the same. What happened? Yeah, so hip-hop with a small H came in, which is uh, the kind of mainstream hip-hop that we see now, which is essentially advertising. It's a three-minute song that advertises Lamborghinis and Peroni. I suppose I'd, I'd like to think that I'm, I'm invoking the spirit of, of original hip-hop. You can say a lot in three minutes at 85 BPM. You know what I mean? Where do your beats come from? Uh, all over. Um... A lot of them, like, I've made a few beats myself, but I'm not great at it. As I said, I don't really have a musical background. I'm learning guitar. I do I do some of my performances on the acoustic guitar, but uh, today I haven't because I, I, I banjacked my finger playing hurling last weekend. Hypocrisy over democracy. Free trade versus freedom. You just watch and see. Education, healthcare, climate change, social protection, workers' rights, and the minimum wage. Our sovereignty, our climate, yeah, you see it all burn. Yeah, I remember 
how this whole thing started, I was, I was putting on an event before um, with an activist group. Uh, I just wrote a rhyme about the, the topic. It was about food sovereignty, um, which, again, super niche, like not something that you would expect in a, in a rap. But people really liked it, and... Uh, yeah, they used to get me up with other stuff. Say, oh, do your do your rap again, or the house party and stuff. They do, and I end up kind of writing a second one, and people like that. The whole thing just grew from there, but it wasn't. There was never a plan, and it wasn't intentional. It just it just happened. Don't ratify the deal. There's just too much at stake. It's a joke that this shit is even up for debate. I was doing all this pretty much anonymously up until about two months ago. A few friends had seen me perform and they knew about it, but like my family didn't know about it, the people I lived with didn't know about it. That's kind of why I had to have a, a name, so I went with the, the accidental rapper. But you're out now. Uh, I'm, I'm out now, yeah. Um, yeah, I was, it was getting... I, I, when I got booked to play Electric Picnic, a lot of my friends were already going, um, and I was like, it's going to be too hard to, like... To avoid it and, and, and to, to kind of hide it from them, I guess. Um, so yeah, it was also a good, a good op, like opportunity for them to see me live at Electric Picnic. It was, it was like validation, I suppose. Um, as I said, I'd been quite unsure about even the topics I talk about are, are very niche topics, even for hip hop. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm out of the, I'm out of the closet now. Not to mention the delays caused by chilling effects. Largest landlord in the state is Canadian owned. Somehow I doubt they'd let us build many affordable homes until the Taoiseach... I have a song about um, CETA, which is the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement, which is a trade deal between Canada and the EU. Um, this all sounds incredibly boring because it's designed to be. It's not for public consumption. Um, these trade deals are discussed behind closed doors. They're sold to us as free trade agreements. They have almost nothing to do with free trade. They're... Um, as Noam Chomsky likes to say, they're investor rights agreements and they're about protecting investors over the wider society. They can be used to stop minimum wages from rising, they can be used to stop public health um, regulations on products, they can be used to stop climate action happening, they can be used to stop, as I said, plain packaging on cigarettes. An example I give is, is Australia. When they brought in plain packaging on cigarettes, which is a good thing for their citizens, they were sued by Philip Morris, a tobacco giant, because this would impact Philip Morris's future expected profits. So Philip Morris would say, oh, if you bring in this law that helps your people, we'll have less profits, we'll sell less cigarettes. So you owe us hundreds of millions of dollars. And the threat with that is there's what's called a chilling effect on regulation, where policymakers and lawmakers will say, oh, rather than bring in this new law, it's too much hassle, we'll just have to go through the courts and it'll take years and it'll take lots of money, we just won't do it. And then we all suffer just so that a, a corporation can, can have increased profits over the long run. It's uh, something you point out in that song, that, you know, if we'd have had that regulation in Ireland, we'd never have managed a smoking ban. No, it would not have happened. Um, yeah, so Ireland actually were pretty fortunate compared to other countries. The issue with these trade agreements is what's known as an ISDS clause, Investor State Dispute Settlement Clause, which is what allows foreign companies to take governments to court. Ireland is only currently in one trade agreement that has that clause. Some countries have loads of them. CETA is one that we're in negotiations with. We haven't ratified it. The, the song is to, to stop CETA and, and to have that ratification not happen. But there's a, there's a big movement across Europe now for the EU and for all the countries involved to pull out of the Energy Charter Treaty or to exit the ECT. Last week, the Netherlands pulled out, uh, Spain have pulled out, Poland have pulled out, um, Germany, Belgium and France are looking at ways that they can pull out of it. Italy left it years ago. But yeah, we're, we're still currently in it. But I, I would be looking for for Eamon Ryan to, and, and Simon Coveney, I suppose, to, to exit Ireland from the ECT over the next couple of months. That is just called Stop CETA, plain and simple. Stop the power and the greed and the suing of nations by the profit.
it all hush, then rush it through without discussion. My name is Renny Buenting, and uh, I'm an artist from Carlo, and I've been interested in the sugar industry in Ireland and other matters as well. I think some of my art has been protesting about things or trying to improve things, and this is one of them. Tell us where we are and what we're looking at. We're looking at a giant funnel here containing sugar, and the sugar is running out of it as a kind of showing what happened to the Irish sugar. We ran out of Irish sugar. It was no longer produced. Our factories closed in 2005. But in 1925, when it was set up, it was the first state-owned company of the Irish Free State. The thing I remember about beet sugar was that it has quite a distinctive smell, isn't that right? Mm, that, one, that one doesn't have a distinctive smell. But the beet itself, when it was brought to the factories and the, the production of the sugar brought very distinct smell and everybody remembers the smell of that and the whole town would smell of it. But it, it wasn't a nasty smell, yeah. It was kind of a sign of, yeah, they're making sugar again. And this would be the time of the year that they would start bringing the beets to the sugar factory. So, so they would call it the campaign, and it would start in October, it would go on till January. Ireland has ideal soil. Just outside the door here, there's a wheelbarrow filled with produce. And I've just picked that last week in a neighbour's field who is growing it, not to make sugar with, but to feed it to his cattle. So it's still being grown, but it's only being grown for animals. And what's the variety there? That's, a, that's not the variety we would put in our salads. It's a white beet to start with, and it's very large. It is not the variety that would be used to make sugar with. They would be told every year what variety to grow. So the, the company would decide what would be best in the year and they, the farmers would then buy the seeds and grow it. Yes, yeah. yeah. So your installation has several parts here in the foyer, Tim. You've got your wheelbarrow of beets, you've got your sugar dispenser and here there's a map of the world. That's right. The map is four and a half metres long and about three metres wide and the black lines on the map show where the parts of the sugar factory went and they were used in different factories. Some of them sugar factories, others maybe different kind of industries. Uh, but in Russia it was sugar beet and some of the people from the Irish factory actually went there to show them how to use the, the machinery. And the same in Israel. I mean, I have a list there and it was, it was a massive amount. 500 tonne went to Israel, I believe, and 300 tonne to Russia. And the only remaining structure is on that poster on the wall there, uh, the Carlo Lime Killen Tower. That's still um, in Ireland. Why did the beet sugar industry close down, though? That is the big question that uh, very few people know exactly what happened. Um, I know that at some stage our beet quota was given up. And I was speaking to a new company, well, it's not new, it started in 2011 or 2012, called Beat Ireland. And they were telling me that um, Ireland gave their sugar quota, which we still had at that time, to the EU. If they could support a sugar industry in 1925, I'm just wondering, can they support a new sugar industry now? Hey, uh, how's it going? Sorry, um, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm not much of a performer, really. 
The human holding me estimates that I'm about 8,000 years old. My name is Luke Casterly and I'm a performance maker. The project that I'm presenting as part of Earth Rising is called Distillation. And the project is a collaboration between me and the very first landscape I ever encountered, which was the Midlands Bog landscape in County Longford. What I'm attempting to do for the audience is uh, share that landscape with them uh, through scent. The form of the work is an interactive performance lecture in which each person receives a small bottle of essence which has been custom made for the performance by an Irish perfume maker called Joan Woods. The project is about capturing two simultaneous truths about that place which are, number one, the hugely positive environmental impact now happening because of the cessation of the peat harvesting industry but also the sort of sense of displacement and worry and anxiety that comes with the disintegration of an entire industry in a region. That place means something different to lots of different people and I think it's important to to try to create a project that captured that in a way. I came here from the very centre and when this is over I'll be returned back to that place. And one of the ways you've, you did that in the performance was actually to, to give voice to the turf itself, which actually, as you stand in front of me, you have your uh, recycled um, uh, bum bag, which is filled with turf even now. Yeah, yeah, that was important, I think, to try to, to give a voice to something that is voiceless, right? Because the landscape can't speak to us, but if it could, here's the attempt. I haven't been doing the best recently. I haven't really been well. There's been a lot going on and things have been complicated to say the least. So you actually did bring uh, lots of little bottles of this for us. Maybe you'd have a little squirt there yourself and tell me about what's going on in there. I'll, I'll put it on your wrist here. When I close my eyes, it brings me to the things that we smelled when we were there. Beetroot. Where are... Look... Lemon coconut and orange a lot of people a lot of people get smoke fire wood a lot of different textures and sensations come up for people what I'm, I was trying to do at the end is, is invite people to share if they want where they went when they, when they smell it it does have a kind of ancient smell doesn't it yeah but thankfully I'm on the mend now I'm recovering even if it's a slow process My name is Lucy Jones. I'm a journalist and author based in Hampshire, England. Um, I'm here at IMMA for the Earth Rising Festival and I'm here to deliver a keynote talk about my book, Losing Eden, Why Our Minds Need the Wild. And we're sort of in the wild here. That's the kind of interesting that we're right next to the museum, but there is this sort of wild patch around here. Yeah, it's beautiful. We are... Uh, there's lots of mulch and, and dead leaves on the floor and uh, lots of different nettles and, and the trees. Um, yeah, I'm definitely my element here. I reconnected with nature about 10 years ago, which precipitated me writing my book and investigating these links between nature and mental health. I started as a journalist in Honduras and then I was a local newspaper reporter and I specialised in music for a bit at NME. 
about 10 years ago, I was uh, living in London and suffering from depression and anxiety and uh, substance issues. And I found that part of my recovery was in spending time in the natural world, which surprised me. I didn't realise that it could be therapeutic. I knew about psychiatry, I knew about therapy and so on. But the the power and the strength of spending time um, in Walthamstow Marshes kind of blew my mind. So I wanted to find out what happens to our brains when we're in a natural space? What happens to our bodies, to our limbic systems? And that led me to walk into this extremely fertile and exciting field of researchers in every continent of the world trying to measure and look at what happens to the human um, mind and body when we're in natural areas. Tell us a bit about Walthamstow Marches. People aren't necessarily aware that, that there in uh, northeast London there's a lot of wilderness sort of um, in little strips moving through the houses. Yeah, that's right. So um, I was living in Clapton at the time and um, really not very far to a park or anything, but about 15-minute walk was Walthamstow Marshes. And that's this kind of really enormous open space with um, the River Lee, which runs through, and little kind of copses of woodland. Um, there are kind of belty Galloway cows and, and birds of prey like kestrels. And I'd hear like the plop of the water vole and, and look at all the, the, the river plants and, and the flowers. And it felt like a lot, a lot of the natural world, um, so close to buildings and trains. It, it felt very relaxing to be there. I, I started wanting to try and boost my mood in different ways. So I, I initially I was going running because I knew that in, in do- you get endorphins through running. But then I found I'd end up just walking really slowly and kind of ambling about looking at trees. Then when I'd get back to my flat the kind of self-critical negative thoughts that were plaguing me at the time seemed to have gone for a while. Um, And so I I could see that it was having this kind of direct effect on my my brain and my thinking. And it became kind of as addictive almost as the mind-altering substance I was uh, consuming before. That gave me a sense of this kind of potential power. But I didn't really realise how how robust the evidence base is um, for this connection between nature and mental health until I started really properly researching it. The more I looked, the more, more I learned. And, you know, there were kind of in, environmental geographers studying it, psychologists, neuroscientists, people who study hormones, people who study gut bacteria. And it became clear to me that nature can affect um, the human animal kind of from our heads to our toes. Um, so we all know that kind of being in a park or being by the seaside is in some way relaxing. Um, But did you know, for example, that you recover quickly and more completely from stress in a natural environment, that smelling trees, cedarwood, the the phytoncides, the chemicals that the tree releases can reduce inflammation, that looking at fractal shapes or smelling petrichor, the smell of the earth after it's rained, can trigger areas of the brain associated with calmness and relaxation. There were so many examples like this. And of course, there will be many more things that we don't know about. Um, But I found that a very um, exciting thing to bring to people, to almost give people kind kind of permission to spend time in the natural world, considering we spend 1.1 to 5% of our time outdoors today. How did you feel about this research that came out recently? And I mean, I know it's a BMJ preprint, but there was a, a, a lot of pushback on social prescribing, which I, I guess is the, the area you're talking about. I think that the, um, the, the area that we're talking about is very complex. So mental health is obviously extremely complex. So is nature. There are, you know, saying to someone, ditch your pills and go into the woods 
you know that's clearly you know the wrong way to do it it's much more complicated than that there'll be people who have uh, different kind of cultural preferences in terms of nature there'll be people with different mental health problems who might require a kind of different different environment or different place we definitely need more research one of the leading physicians in this area Howard Frumkin said to me there's no harm to it that it there's no risk to it there's clearly benefits and they could be through kind of exercise being outside social contact having your kind of circadian rhythms reset healthily Um, but there also seems to be all these therapeutic benefits as well here at uh, earth rising it's an eco arts festival and it immediately the the stuff that you were talking about about looking at fractals and at certain types of attention it's very interesting to see how those kind of behaviors or or um Um, states of being intersect with people making art you know which is obviously feeding off some of the same mechanisms or processes sure I mean I think I'm probably quite a kind of basic art consumer in that I'm very kind of drawn to like color and shape I suppose in culture what I'm always looking for is a kind of sense of transcendence maybe you mentioned transcendence there and, and you have said that is one of the things that you know is never going to be measured in the lab successfully so it's never going to be offered as a an argument for re-engaging yes i don't know how you would measure transcendence in the lab i mean they've managed to measure or um the science of awe i think is a really exciting area which basically tells us that when we experience awe, um it has measurable effects on our body and our health uh on our on our longevity on our inflammation it's really really important to experience awe. it's not just a luxury everyday awe i find is is something i get through kind of looking at moss and lichen on a wall particularly with my jewelry loop like I have a tiny little magnifying glass which I take around with me or looking at kind of slime molds on a piece of wood and and kind of really it I guess it's a way of kind of seeing a different kind of perception of of just realizing that like under our feet there's all these colors and shapes and you know there's so much life and being in that kind of that tangle of life it just like blows my mind but then I think my other experience of all really and I think awe in the kind of ancient sense of awe and terror has been through giving birth so I've given birth to three children and that was terror and it was awe. Lucy Jones there on why our minds need the wild and finally this time we're leaving Kilmainham and setting sail for the Caribbean in the company of Tygo Sullivan and his latest missive from the cloud of unknowing. The year is 1504 stranded on what is now Jamaica His ship's timber riddled with worms, Christopher Columbus has, after six months, exhausted the patience and hospitality of the Taino locals. Evidently unable to catch fish or otherwise fend for themselves, Columbus and his crew, including his teenage son Ferdinand, face starvation unless their erstwhile hosts can be convinced to share more of their food and resources. The Genoese sailor, Flicking one evening through a handy almanac he had thought to pack, notices something which might do the trick. In a mere matter of days, on February 29th, there is to be a lunar eclipse. On the auspicious day, Columbus summons the caciques, senior members of the local society, and issues a grave warning. Unless he and his men are cared for and fed indefinitely, his Christian god will demonstrate a profound displeasure with the Taino. Unimpressed and unmoved, the caciques go back about their business. 
That evening, around sunset, Columbus summons them once more and bids them look at the rising moon. To their alarm and awe, a great red shadow begins to cross the lunar surface. Columbus, man of drama that he is, retires to his quarters, where, unseen, he times the eclipse with an hourglass, emerging just in time to see the shadow leave the moon and the consequences of his cleverness. The Taino, who evidently had no knowledge of lunar eclipses, no cosmology to speak of, and who were gullible enough to believe that a man unable to catch an iguana to eat could command the heavens, with great howling and lamentation came running from every direction to the ships, laden with provisions, praying the Admiral to intercede by all means with God on their behalf, that he might not visit his wrath upon them. So wrote Ferdinand, many years later, in a biography of his father. In telling his tall tale and asserting for posterity his father's wit and virtue, Ferdinand also inadvertently created a powerful meme an idea wrapped in an image that would morph and move across the centuries. H. Ryder Haggard's King Solomon's Mines came out in 1885 and was a publishing sensation. Its British author had never had anything published previously, and nothing in his mediocre CV, a failed entrance exam to the British Army, unpaid internships serving colonial governors in South Africa, anticipated the fame and fortune that would follow. The book was the original Lost World tale, a story of adventuring colonial types, journeying into the dark African interior, guided by a map drawn in blood, and a young local man, secretly the true king of his people, far more noble than the savages they encounter. The heroes present themselves as sorcerer gods, making their way by tricking and outwitting those they encounter with demonstrations in which simple Western technologies are perceived as magic. The trick with the eclipse, the ultimate demonstration of divinity. By Jove, look here. 11.15, total eclipse of the sun visible over Tenerife, South Africa. Magic! Good, you're a genius. 11.15, and all the settle, Just as his protagonists hoped to, Haggard discovered a rich and glittering scene. British reading public, eager for tales of colonial adventure, exotic locations, impossible wealth fair for the taking, and strange backward people whose lack of civilization justified their destruction. An entire publishing genre was born, with countless tales of treasure and stories of savagery filling the bookstores and theatres, in time the cinemas. King Solomon's Mines itself would be adapted for the screen numerous times, this 1937 version by Robert Stevenson, the most famous. In 1941, the eclipse meme got another outing in The Secret Mountain by the racist children's writer Enid Blyton, while a few years later, after the war, Belgian cartoonist Hergé, still smarting from the consequences of working with the occupying Nazi forces, began publishing his latest Tintin book, Prisoners of the Sun. Oh, sublime Pachacamac, show your people that you deny them the sacrifices and hide thy shining countenance. The comic was translated into dozens of languages and adapted for the screen numerous times, including this 1969 version by Eddie Latest. Like Blyton, Hergé had his natives, Inca in this case, as a lost tribe. The sun obeys him. We are at their mercy. 
On your knees before the chosen of the sun. Backward enough, even in the mid-20th century, to be outwitted by European children. All told, Ferdinand Columbus's meme was riffed on and shared millions of times. Every version and variation, whether played out in the distant past or the faraway present, carried a key double-edged idea. The brilliance of Western knowledge and the worthless backwardness of the victim's culture. As their culture has been almost entirely lost, we have no idea what the Taino knew of eclipses, of the moon, or indeed of the Europeans. We don't know their version of the events described by Ferdinand. His story about this one time his dad tricked all these Indians, but it seems that a great trick was indeed played by Columbus, by his son, by colonial adventurers and their cheerleaders across the centuries. A trick in which we were told that the cultures and peoples being sacrificed at the altar of colonialism, capitalism and progress had no value that there was nothing worth learning or preserving beyond that which could be placed behind glass in museums, safely rendered as past. And for hundreds of years we looked up in awe and believed them. Tygo Sullivan there on Another Big Lie, bringing to a close this podcast-only edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more deceptive conjunctions next week. Meanwhile, don't miss the Culture File Debate, the Fire This Time edition, which should be right next to this episode in your podcast feed. Bye now.